a couple of years ago, there's a baseball player named Bryce Harper, and he was asked a question by a, a reporter, and um, it was kind of a dumb question, I think, because he goes, hey, that's a clown question, bro. And basically, he was accusing this journalist of asking kind of an amateur question, and I, I, I think about that. That's a clown question. That's an amateurish kind of thing. And so I've been getting, uh, I was thinking over the last week about who all in history that we would consider to be famous was actually an amateur at the time. Here's a list. Uh, William Shakespeare was actually an amateur in his profession for most of his career, technically. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci would have been considered an amateur at his craft. Not bad, huh? Um, uh, the guy Marconi, who invented a lot of radio technology, was an amateur. He was doing that as an amateur. Steve Harvey won an amateur night show on October 8, 1985, and said he walked into his job the next day and quit and never looked back. Uh, he knew, even as an amateur of it, he thought he had something. Uh, Tony Bennett, who's like 148 years old, uh, tells a story about when he was 12. He was listening to what was called the Major Bose Amateur Hour on September 8, 1935, and a group uh, won that night called the Hoboken uh, Four, and the lead singer of the Hoboken Four was an amateur by the name of Frank Sinatra. So not a bad amateur. Like, a lot of people kind of start there. And, and I thought about the 1980 men's hockey team, which it's almost inarguable that the, the game between them and the Russian uh, national team in the 1980 Winter Olympics is the greatest uh, upset in the history of sports. That was just a bunch of amateurs, several of them, from right here in Charlestown and the neighborhoods around here, um, amateurs. You know, can you imagine just going up to Leonardo da Vinci? Dude, what, a, what an amateur. Or William Shakespeare looking at Hamlet being like, man, that's amateur work right there. Everybody, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said every artist started out, uh, or every artist was first an amateur. Every artist was first an amateur. Every successful athlete was first an amateur. Every scientist was first an amateur. Charles Darwin was an amateur at his field. Every achiever was first an amateur. And here's the, here's the sort of definition, the Webster definition of amateur. Somebody who is either, one, unpaid at what they do, or two, someone who is inept or ignorant. Like, I love those two words. Uh, the definition of being an amateur is you are either inept or ignorant in that. Do you ever feel like an amateur when it comes to following God? Do you ever feel inept or ignorant in some things? It's like we've, we've lived a certain way for so many years or we've thought a certain way for so many years. Vaskin and I were talking right before worship today and I was saying for, in my life for 20 years, I thought one way and I got like, I didn't get to the bottom of my rope with that way of thinking. I fell off the rope with that way of thinking and hit the bottom. And a pastor in my life helped me begin to retrain my beliefs and reorient my life around the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And, uh, and then God began to grow me and build my faith. Uh, but in that moment at 20, my thinking was so bad for 20 years, I was inept and ignorant when it came to thinking about myself and the world from God's point of view. Maybe you feel like an amateur at faith. I see people who have big faith. Do you ever meet somebody who's like, man, why can't I have faith like that? Um, I, do you ever feel like an amateur when it comes to the Bible? I meet a lot of people who feel like total amateurs. They're like, 
that book is really long, and I don't know where to start or how to understand it. Like, a lot of us feel like amateurs when it comes to the Bible. I feel like an amateur when it comes to prayer. Do any of you ever feel like amateurs when it comes to prayer? Some of you don't. Most people don't struggle with that. My mind wanders all over the place, so I feel very inept at focusing at times and and praying. Do you ever feel uh, like an amateur at living as a godly student or as a godly employee or as a godly roommate or as a godly spouse or as a godly parent or godly grandparent? Those are all areas at times where we can feel like amateurs, feel very inept and ignorant. I often feel like an amateur at sharing my faith well. It either feels for me like I come on too strong or I am kind of cowardly and don't say enough. I feel inept. I can't, sometimes it feels like I can't quite hit that sweet spot. Um, And then together, I assume that most of us have not started a church together in New England. So we're kind of ignorant of this thing we're doing right now. And there are even times where some of you will be like, J.D., do you really think da-da-da-da-da? Do you think this is going to work? And my answer is, I think so. Like, I've prayed about it. But let's keep going because we're ignorant. It's not that we're stupid. It's we're ignorant. We don't know yet. We don't have enough information. We haven't journeyed far enough down the road in this thing called faith and planting a church together. So if you've ever felt like an amateur, congratulations. History says some of the greatest discoveries and art and accomplishments have happened because of amateurs. In fact, Renee, if you'll pull up that first slide, that one that says A, being an amateur at following God and being a Christian, the Christian life is like being an amateur at kite flying. Uh, Did any of you ever fly kites as kids? I hated kite flying, I'll be honest. Like, I hated it. Hated it. Uh, We didn't live in a place that had real high elevation. It wasn't like we were growing up on the Great Plains. And there just wasn't a lot of wind, you know. Like, first of all, I had a hard time assembling those stupid kites. And then I would get it assembled. And then, like, you know, you'd have to do the string. And my string would always get tangled up. And it's just a mess. And so by the time you finally get the kite laid out and the string ready to go, you're totally wind dependent. And I was living in a city where there was no wind not a lot of wind. And um, so kite flying was basically impossible. And I felt like a dum-dum. I, I, but I did, I, you know, you could figure out how to get the kite, lay the string. Anybody can do that. The crazy thing about being a, if there's like a, a, a major league kite flying league, or there's like a national kite flying league, or whatever, National Kites Association, if, I, if I'm the at the top of that sport and can lay my kite out properly and can get the string straight or I'm a complete amateur. You know what? Both the pro and the amateur are totally wind dependent. If I'm a pro at it or if I'm a complete amateur at flying a kite, we both, I would, I would either way be dependent on the wind. You know what? In the, in the Bible, in the Greek and the New Testament, the word for Holy Spirit You know, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, God in us. The word for the Spirit is the same word as wind. It's the wind. That's why in Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, it says a rushing wind came in. The Spirit came in like a a flood into the room. And people were um, 
the, the Spirit of God for the first time in human history in Acts 1 is living in people. It's a wind rushing into the room. So being an amateur at following God is like being an amateur at kite flying. Anybody can unravel it and lay it out. The beauty of the kite is that it's totally wind-dependent. The beauty of the Christian life is that it demands our declarations of ineptness and ignorance, and it celebrates our total dependence on the wind of God's Spirit. I've never started a church before in New England. I don't have to have done that. It's just better if we say, we don't really know what we're doing. We're going to listen to God and lean into him. I don't know how to read the Bible. I'm not good at that. That's okay. You can be ignorant and inept. If you will lean into God to lift the kite into the air, that's the best place to be. And so we're going to look at the book of Titus over the next few weeks. Titus is given a task of starting healthy churches in neighborhoods all over the island of Crete, which is, we'll see in two weeks, one of like the worst parts of the Roman Empire ever. Like, I mean, these people are just historically goofy and bad and dishonest and rough people. And so Paul sends this guy Titus in. We'll see to start churches all over the island of Crete. But today we're just going to get to the greeting. We're going to look at Titus 1, uh, 1 through 4, um, because Titus is an amateur at starting churches on the island of Crete, and yet that's what this letter is all about. And I think there'll be some parallels for us uh, as we look at um, Titus and think about planting a church in Boston and Charlestown at this time. So let me read uh, Titus 1, verses 1 through 4, and we'll go through kind of phrase by phrase. And, um, and then talk about what it means. So Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he goes on, verse 5, and this is kind of the mission statement of this letter. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders or pastors in every town as I directed you. So the point of Titus is here's a man who is writing one of his understudies and, uh, and saying, your job is to put pastors in every zip code on the island of Crete, and so he's never done that. Let me give you just a little bit of um, background. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, maybe 14, but certainly 13. He's Jewish. He's as Jewish. He's like a ninja Jew. Like he is so Jewish, he's killing the Christians. He hates them. He's trying to follow God to the letter of the law, as religious as you can possibly imagine. And while he's on. Uh, the road to Damascus to arrest a bunch of Christians, throw them in jail and have them killed. Uh, Jesus meets him on the road, blinds him, and calls him to stop persecuting Christians, but to begin to become a Christian and to follow Jesus and be changed. And he does. And he sort of disappears for a few years. And he comes back and he's a leader at a church in in Antioch. And then the church prays and feels like God's spirit is leading them to send out two of their best leaders, Paul and a guy named Barnabas. And so they pray over those guys and they send them out. And that sends Paul out on a lifetime of starting churches all around the Roman Empire. 
And he goes on three missionary journeys. He gets as far as Spain. He's starting churches as far as Spain from uh, what's modern-day Israel. And he starts them. And he doesn't start one in Rome, but he's providing some authority in Rome. Uh, he goes to Athens and is speaking in the amidst uh, Athens after its heyday. And Ephesus, he starts a very powerful church in Ephesus, which is the second largest city in the Roman Empire. And he's starting all these churches. He was a Jewish Jew, as Jew as you could be, and becomes a Christian who ends up uh, losing his life in 65 AD during um, sort of an outburst of Emperor Nero. And he's writing to Titus. Now, Titus is not Jewish. Titus is Greek. And, um, and he becomes a follower of Jesus, and Paul takes him under his wing, and Titus begins at some point to go on these missionary journeys with him. The cool thing about Titus is he actually shows up in other books of the Bible. He, you, they mention Titus in Galatians. Titus is mentioned in the book of Acts, which is kind of the history of the church being started and spreading from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And so Titus is in other books, so we can verify that this guy was real, that we can sort of get a, a footprint of where he went around the Roman Empire and the difference that he made. So, and, and Paul is writing to Titus, but he's also writing, he's going to speak uh, in y'alls a little, like you plurals some here. So he's also writing to these churches in Crete. So Titus is going to take this letter and he's going to use it as his blueprint for starting churches. But he's also going to go to the churches and he's going to read it. And they're going to have heard of Paul because he's been there before. He's going to say, hey, guys, let me read you what Paul wrote. And this is our blueprint. This is the game plan for what we're going to do. A bunch of amateur Christ followers planting and starting a bunch of amateur churches learning to be the church when they never had before. And so this is a typical letter. In a typical Roman letter, here's how it would go. You would have, uh, you always sign the letter first. You know, have you ever gotten a letter and you're like, who in the world uh, is this? Like, and you're, you just, like, it's multiple pages. Would you ever do a love note like that when you were in middle school and slip it into the locker? And you, you, maybe you get one of those. You're like, what guy, what girl wrote me this thing? It's four pages long and you just go to the last page. They eliminated that 2,000 years ago and would just sign it first. So he says, Paul. And then you would have a greeting or a blessing or a thanksgiving. I'm so thankful for you that you are my friend. So thankful that you fed me dinner the other night. That was amazing. You're a friend of the end. And then they would address the recipient. He says, Titus. And then you would do a blessing. Like, man, I just pray God would bless you. The typical blessing in a Roman Empire letter 2,000 years ago would be, man, grace to you or peace to you or something like that. Just I hope that the gods are good to you. And that's not how Paul does. We'll see what he says in just a moment. So let's start with his greeting. He says, Paul, I'm a bondservant. I'm a, a willing slave. I, if some of your Bibles may even say, I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm a slave of God. And it's not like a slave like 19th century slavery. This is a slave who willingly says, oh, I'll be your, I'm your servant. I'm God. I am your servant. I'm enlisting myself into your service for the rest of my life. And then he says, a bond servant, and he says, an apostle, a sent out one. That word apostle just means sent out, a messenger of Jesus Christ. Now, why is these? He goes on and he says, this is one of those things, for the sake of the faith of God's people. For this, I, I'm a bond servant, and I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's people, the church, the true church, the believers. And then he goes on, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's people and for their knowledge of the truth, not book knowledge. Like, how many of you 
feel dumb when it comes to this book. Now, some of you feel uh, ignorant when it comes to this book. And some of us at times feel ignorant when it comes to following God. See, God doesn't need us to know facts about this. Like, we can learn facts. There's 66 books. There's 39 in the Old Testament. There's 27 in the New. The longest one is Psalm uh, 119. The shortest verse in this Bible is Jesus wept. Like, God doesn't, is not wanting us to know facts about the Bible. When Paul says, I am a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus, for the knowledge of truth, he's not saying, like, I want all people on Crete to know how many chapters and verses are in the Bible and be able to just quote Genesis 1 or what. He's not saying that. He's, what he's saying is, um, I want you to experience the truth. The, the Old Testament word for know is um, a, a word of sexual intimacy. And so that's why in the King James Version, when it talks about Adam and Eve, it says, and they were naked and unashamed, and they knew one another. It's not like he, Adam is like, man, I know Eve. She's got blonde hair and brown eyes, and she's five foot two, and she is pretty. Like, he knows her experientially. He's been intimate with her. And Paul says, I'm a bondservant of God and a messenger of Jesus for the faith of God's people and for their knowledge that we would know the truth of who God is. Not here, but here in how we live. And then he goes on and he says, um, with which accords with godliness. Now, when I think of godliness, I think of uh, Ace Ventura 2. Did anybody, did, do any of you remember Ace Ventura 2? You remember the beginning of Ace Ventura 2 where the guy is sent to try to find him. And because he killed that raccoon, uh, he's in this like Buddhist monastery or something. And he goes up and he finds him. And I just remember uh, Ace being like, all righty then. You know, do you remember that at all? Like, I love that scene. Like, God does not need us to be a bunch of weird Buddhist monks sitting in some place in the in Tibet when it when when Paul writes which accords with godliness what it's talking about is everyday godliness if you work downtown God wants you to be godly at work if you're a school teacher here God wants you to be godly here if you uh, manage your home God wants you to be godly here if you work across the street God wants you to be godly not with a you know you're wearing a priest collar and have like strapped a Bible onto your arm with a belt, like going to work. Look at me, I'm so godly. I've got on this collar and this Bible around my arm. It's just normal, everyday faith, living for God where God has put you. And that's what Paul is saying. That's why he's, God has called him to be who he has is so that Christians would come to have faith and knowledge of truth, which accords with everyday living, with devotion for God. And then in verse 2 he says, and there's one phrase in here I love, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies. If you like to write in your Bible, that's a good phrase. God never lies. In fact, Renee, will you put up the next slide? God never lies. I just want to remind you of that today. If the Bible says it, you can bank on it. God doesn't lie. When the Bible says that, uh, the, the Greek, the way it says it is the non-lying God or the unfalse God. You can bank on God's truthfulness. So when God says that you belong to him, 
He's not ever going to lie about that. Like, if he says, oh, Carla is my daughter, he, she belongs to me. There's not going to be a day where, God, where Carla's ever going to have to wake up and God's going to have been like, psych, I was just kidding. Carla, you're not my daughter anymore. Won't you be a better person or believe better and then you can be my daughter again? God never lies. When God says that he works everything for good in our life, he's not lying. Some things in my life that God sort of that passed through his hand, I thought they were a curse. I thought they were a straight-up curse. In hindsight, I can look and say, oh, God actually did work those things for good. He wasn't lying. He never leaves us. He's not lying when he says he won't leave us. When he says that all of our sins are forgiven in Christ, he's not lying. When he promises to bless us, he's not lying. When God says that we are overcomers in Christ Jesus and there's no condemnation, he's not lying. If you ever come across a verse in the Bible where it says, I will, and it's God talking, bank on it. Bank on it. Like, build your life around those things. And so going on, God never lies. And at the proper time, God manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The gospel is written, uh, rooted in eternity, and it's manifested at just the right time through the preaching of the Bible. Uh, preaching matters. Like I think in church, uh, communion is awesome. You know, before the Reformation, 500 years ago, the central part of church, of worship, was communion. Um, Because a lot of times the the church service would occur in Latin and people couldn't understand any of it. The most central things in a church were, one, the stained glass windows because they told the story of the gospel. And two, communion because that's how people were... um, being led to believe they were receiving their salvation each week. After the Reformation 500 years ago, preaching of the Bible became central. So that that is not the centerpiece of worship. That is actually our response to this. That is our response to this. Paul says that preaching of the word, the basics, the the guts of the Bible is commanded and it ought to be central. And then he goes on in verse 4 and he says to Titus, that Gentile Greek guy, uh, my true child in a common faith because he was led to faith by Paul and my traveling companion, my protege. Paul's on the mainland of the Roman Empire. He is in uh, modern day Greece at the time, and Titus is on this island of Crete, which is in the middle of the Mediterranean, to stabilize churches and to appoint elder pastors. And he says, my true child in a common faith. I love that phrase. Uh, it doesn't mean every, like, everyday ho-hum faith, you know, like, oh, I've got this common pair of socks. It's a white pair of socks, and I've got six of them, and I wear them every day. Those are my common socks. It's not that. It's not an everyday faith. He's saying it's the standard faith. What was going to be faith in Crete should be the same faith in Athens, should be the same faith in Rome, should be the same faith in Jerusalem. There should be a standard uh, common faith. And I want to tell you, if you're part of this church, we're actually part of God doing something like that in the city. We're part of a network called Send Boston. And the goal of Send Boston is to plant churches in every zip code in Boston that have Four or five common traits. One, the centrality of the Bible. Two, believer's baptism or a personal profession of faith and relationship with Jesus. Uh, Three, churches that don't operate up. They're autonomous local churches, but they're also churches that multiply. 
and, and start other churches. And so one of the most, um, one of the older churches in our network is a church in Cambridge called Hope Fellowship. It's about five miles from here. And Hope Fellowship, they call Curtis Cook, the pastor there, the godfather of church planting in Boston. Because Curtis has single-handedly overseen the starting of about a dozen churches in the last 15 years. His church is about 15 years old, and they've started about a dozen, and those dozen have probably started another couple of dozen. And so 15 years ago, if you looked at a map of the churches of our denomination and network in this city, 15 years ago, there were three. And now there are 65. And the goal is for there one day to be 300 from Newburyport down to the Cape and out to Worcester. Every zip code with a life-giving, autonomous multiplying uh, church, and then the other trait of Sin Boston Church is that they're all about Jesus and relationships with God and people. So it's a standard faith. We want to standardize the faith and what it means to be God in community, and that's what Paul is calling Titus to. And then he says, grace and peace to you um, from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the greeting. We'll stop uh, with the greeting. Let me give you a couple of like points of application really quick. What should we even do with this? Just an intro. Here's the big, um, the big idea. Um, the big idea of this passage is in verse 2, where it talks about faith and knowledge of truth and godliness. Where in your life, if you think of yourself as an amateur, where do you look and say, I need to grow here? I need deeper faith? Or do you look and say, I need more knowledge? I just don't understand what it means to live for Jesus. Or you need more um, godliness, like it needs to flesh itself out, information becoming transformation in how you live. Like Paul says, I'm an apostle and a slave of God so that, you would, so that people would come to faith, have knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. And so here's the, uh, here's the big idea, Renee, if you'll go to the other one. And this is like, if you want to write anything down, here it is. A living faith is a growing faith. Listen, uh, I have a friend who um, lives here in Boston. He's lived in the north all of his life. And he went on a mission trip the other day to the south, which to me sounds really interesting. And so he comes back and he goes, J.D., I understand why you don't want to be a pastor in the south anymore. Uh, I said, well, why is that? He goes, because everyone thinks they're a follower of Jesus. Everybody thinks they're a Christian. And I was like, yep, keep going. And he said, I spent a week trying to tell people who really believe that they're followers of Jesus, like, but their life doesn't show that at all. I spent a week trying to help them understand that they don't have a living faith. Living things grow. Living things grow. We have a dying tree in our backyard. It hasn't grown. It's, 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 it's shrinking. It's contracting. It's dying. Healthy living organisms grow. And a living faith is a growing faith. A living faith goes from faith to knowledge to godliness. And it doesn't happen like, it doesn't happen overnight. And God doesn't expect that it would, but believing becomes information and transformation, becomes everyday devotion uh, in our life. God gets glory from a living, growing faith. And so uh, let me just show you real quickly, too, what that looks like. Because I, I used to get really discouraged as a young adult because I thought if I'm a new follower of Jesus, that my faith will do like this, right? And 
But that wasn't what I was experiencing. Have you ever had one of these? It's like you're doing this in your faith, and then you do that. (laughs) You're like, man, did I love God at all? Why am I feeling like that? A, A living, growing faith does not necessarily look like this. And one of these does not mean that you don't love Jesus and God's given up on you. A living faith looks like this. That's life. That's marriage. That's work. That's every relationship you and I have. And so it makes sense that our relationship with God would be like that. But here's what happens in a living faith. Our valleys, though we still have them, our valleys don't get as low as they used to because they're rooted in the truth of Scripture. Our mountains get higher than they used to because we're growing in grace. A living faith is a growing faith. So it's not like this. Don't be discouraged today if you're here. What should happen is you ought to, we ought to in a living faith, be looking back and saying, you know what? I'm not perfect. I haven't got it all figured out. But by God's grace, I'm not who I was a year ago. I'm not who I was five years ago. So it's hard. Like, don't judge your faith by where you were a week ago. Look back. Is your faith deeper than it was 12 months ago? Do you feel like you know God and his word more than you did 12 months ago? Are you living out the truth more than you did 12 months ago? If I look at, if I look at the last 20, 25 years of my life, that's when I've been really serious about following Jesus, and I went by the lowest moments, I would want to jump off the Zakem Bridge. You know, like those lows are low. But we can't see our lows as insular one thing. If I really think about the big picture and I look at my lows, my lows are not as low as they used to be. And my highs are not because of me. They're because of God working in my life. So I don't shoulder all the blame for my lows and I don't beat myself up and want to go jump off a bridge when I'm low because I know that God is changing me. And I don't pat myself on the back about my highs because I know that God is the one changing me. And that's how we live our faith. A living faith, though, is a growing faith. It does this, it undulates, but it ought to be progressing to becoming more like Jesus and knowing Jesus more profoundly. I love the story of um, William Wilberforce, who almost single-handedly ended uh, slavery in the early 19th 19th century in Great Britain. If you ever watch the movie Amazing Grace... Uh, it's his story. And he's a, he's a, he believes God, like he's a Christian. And then he is a rising star in parliament, but gets confronted one day with the truths of slavery. And, um, and it wrecks him. See, he had faith, but in that moment he gets some knowledge. And that knowledge leads to action and godliness. So that Great Britain ended slavery 50 years before America did. Because one man who followed Jesus allowed his faith to become knowledge, to become godliness. A living faith is a growing faith. God's glory is stolen or hoarded by apathy, aimlessness, and practical atheism. Living as if God doesn't exist. And then this is the last thing I want to tell you. When does this happen? I love what Paul says in verse 3. He says at the proper time. Uh, time is one of my favorite words in, in the New Testament because there's two words for time. Renee, I think I have a, another slide up for this. Yeah, good. So there's two words for time. One is the word chronos. It just means like Carson's got on a watch. If he looks at his watch now, 
um, it'll be different than it was five minutes ago. It's chronos time. The other word is kairos time. That means opportunities. Chronos just means time. Kairos is not that. Kairos is an opportunity, a moment. God's about to do something. And Paul says, at the right moment, God manifested in his word through the preaching. And I've been entrusted. God's about to do something. There's a moment. There's an opportunity. At the proper time, in due season, there's a moment. Today, this, why are we doing this? Because this is our moment in our community. When we came here for the first time, um, looking to relocate our life to Boston, we came to Charlestown and we talked with a friend who's lived in this sort of area for 10 years and is a pastor. And he goes, you don't want to go there. I was like, why? He goes, because that's the neighborhood where churches go to die. I was like, whoo, okay, that, <laughs> that sounds rough. But you know what? And so we remembered that, like that has set in my head and my heart for a long time. But you know what? You know what was louder than that voice? was the voice of God saying, but this is the moment. This is the moment when I'm about to do something through ignorant, inept people so that no one can take credit for it. This week, we'll, we'll post the video that um, Nick came and shot last week. It's pretty cool. A couple of you have seen it. It's really, really well done. And the thing I took away was, man, there were a lot of people here last Sunday. We were having to pull out extra chairs on the back row because it's the right moment. God is inviting us into a season. I was texting the other day with a friend here in Charlestown, and, and um, I wish I'd pulled the text up. She's, we, we were exchanging messages, talking about God's work in our lives. And if she's a follower of Jesus, she's a very baby, infant sort of Christian, new believer. And, she, and I told her, I said, I'm really praying for you. It seems like this is a moment in your life where God is at work. But it's a moment. It's a window. And if you don't respond, windows close. God doesn't just always give us forever to do whatever we want and not respond with limitless opportunities. And she goes, huh, that's interesting. And so I said, it feels to me as I pray and sense that God has an open window in our community right now. And he's about to do something. Um, and she was like, I was just telling uh, my husband that the other day, that it feels like there's a moment. The truth is, when God gives us a moment, we seize the moment. Because those moments don't always stay. And so why are we doing this book of Titus? We're going to take the training wheels off over the next five weeks, and there's going to be some stuff you're going to be like, why are you telling us all this stuff? Because this, I believe, is the vision that God has given for our church and this community as we live out this common standard faith that God gets glory from. And so the goal uh, is not that we would try harder as a church. Ignorance is about admitting that we're inept, but it's also about getting the kite prepared and letting the wind of God's spirit blow in there. It's our moment to surrender and say personally and as a, as a community, I am in, and then say to God, what is it that you want from me? If my faith is living and growing, what would a growing living faith look like for me? What would it, for you... What would a growing, living faith look like in your life? Are there areas where you say, I'm totally ignorant in that area, and I need to grow? What would it look like under your roof for faith to be living and growing? What would it look like for faith to be living and growing with whoever is living under your roof? Maybe it's just you. Maybe it's you and children. Maybe it's you and a spouse. 
under your roof, what would living faith look like? We're starting small groups here in a couple of weeks. What would a living, growing faith look like in a group? And in our church, what would a living, growing faith look like? 